Welcome back to another episode of NFC Rumors, the podcast. Your host today is Alec. I'm actually joined by a co-host, Anna. Anna's at the University of Miami studying environmental policy and has extensive experience doing research dives, working with a local environmentally focused law firm and is the chief environmental officer of a local dive shop here in Miami. She's here to help me guide the conversation as we host the Crypto Coral Tribe. The Crypto Coral Tribe is an NFT project launching on the Solana blockchain. They have 9,000 personified coral avatar NFTs. But what's really interesting about this project is their impact fund and their focus on blockchain sustainability. It's a really interesting conversation about the elephant in the room and talking about the energy consumption and environmental concerns of blockchain technology. As always, we'll start off with the news portion and then transfer over to the interview. Jumping into the first news story of the week, JP Morgan, the large American bank, has launched a virtual lounge in the Decentraland metaverse. Visitors to the lounge are able to see pre-recorded lectures of executives outlining the economics of cryptocurrency, as well as research by the bank outlining the different types of business opportunities companies can expect to find in the metaverse. Additionally, Boston Consulting Group, or BCG, has launched a BCG Gamma office in the Sandbox Metaverse. These headquarters will be used to host public conferences, internal gatherings, and recruiting events. Financial News reports that Amundi, Europe's largest asset manager with over $2 trillion in assets under management, will begin allowing their customers to have exposure to the Metaverse. Although the details have not been finalized, it seems that they will begin by allowing thematic investments in companies involved in the space and may eventually allow for direct investments in NFTs. Blockdown is hosting a Web3 festival on the Croatian coast. The festival will be May 11th through the 13th and focus on everything Web3 related. The tickets to the event will be NFTs and the entire experience will be gamified in the sense that attendees will earn points by participating in select events and activities. And as always, an update on the Metaverse Index token. The Metaverse Index token is essentially an exchange-traded fund of a collection of NFT and Metaverse-related tokens. The index is trading at $148.37, which is down 6.2% on the week. We hope you enjoyed this week's news portion, and now we'll transfer over to our interview with the Crypto Coral Tribe. Welcome back to another episode of NFC Rumors, the podcast. Today's a very special episode for a couple of reasons. I have a co-host with me. Anna is at the University of Miami studying marine science and environmental policy, does research on stakeholder engagement and local policy at the university interns at an environmental nonprofit law firm and directs the Office of Environmental Sustainability at a local dive shop. And the reason she's here is because we are hosting the Crypto Coral Tribe. The Crypto Coral Tribe is a mindful team of environmentalists, art lovers, and tech enthusiasts looking to foster the well-being of our planet and themselves. They have an NFT project with 9,000 NFTs where 50% of revenue goes towards an impact fund led by the community. And they've already planted 3,000 coral across three continents and have partnerships with unique brands, which are leading the fight towards marine conservation around the world. We have the co-founders, Jimmy and Christian here today. Jimmy and Christian, how are y'all doing? We're doing great, thank you. Thanks for having us on. Feeling good, Alec, and very excited to be here, man. Super excited. So to begin, we'd love to hear the background of everybody in the space. So what's y'all's story and what got you into NFTs? So... 
Yeah, I guess my um, my entry into NFTs came through crypto art in particular. Um, I've been creating with um, digital technologies for a while. Um, or always interested around the human body and nature and everything that is sort of natural and organic and how that can coalesce or combine with technology from an artistic perspective, right? So this involved like tracking motion and um, these kinds of things. Um, and then I started seeing a lot of uh, potential opening up for other artists and other people and collaborators I was working with um, in terms of them being able to actually like sell their creations um, online and validate them and create digital scarcity using the blockchain, you know? So that was like a real paradigm shift that now all this work that was being created, this whole digital engine of creativity now had a sort of a marketplace and a, and a, and a value to it when it previously hadn't, you know? Um, so that's what started opening me up to the potential and sort of, as I started researching more and um, following a few NFT collections and sort of things, I started seeing a lot of like, um, community power in terms of like how this brings people together, how people can like passionately support their JPEG, their avatar, you know, and, and get into that whole thing. So, um, so yeah, those, those are the two sort of things that I guess drew me in and pulled me in and, and, uh, led me to kind of collaborate with Jimmy and, and, and come to this point today. Gotcha. And Jimmy, what's, what's your background in? Um, so I've got a bit more of a business background and, um, I went to work to Mozambique as a kind of agri tech consultant and uh, worked with a few tech consultants there. And meanwhile, in parallel, I was listening to a few people in the space like Naval, for instance, uh, which is a guy that I really admire. And he would speak a lot about blockchain. And so what really reeled me in was studying and looking around at different applications of blockchain within the business space, more in terms of like tracking supply chain, but also within a political and environmental conservation point of view, which was very relevant to at the time when I was working in Mozambique. And then uh, when I got back to South of Spain and then started, you know, met Christian and started hanging out with him, he kind of slowly reeled me in more into the artistic side of that. And uh, just like him, you know, the kind of opportunity behind having a strong community or working towards a common goal and, and combining that with all the possibilities that blockchain opens is, is kind of what hooked me in. That's awesome. And so looking at this NFT project, let's start out with the basics. What is the art inspiration for these NFTs and why 9,000? So the art inspiration is called Crypto Coral Tribe and Coral because it supports marine habitats and um, kind of uh, honors that side. Um, when we talk about the inspiration, so they're all like personified characters. They're all kind of like slightly humanoid coral beings, you know, and they've got a slightly like punk and futurist attitude to them as well. Um, this is not only because our, our artist Zhao uh, from Brazil sort of specializes in this kind of solar punk aesthetic, but also because it kind of, we wanted to communicate with the art, like the possibilities of the future, the way in which nature and the organic can sort of combine. So you'll find like robotic eyes and robotic arms and like small little references towards that sort of future possibility of bringing nature and, uh, and technology together. So that's kind of the, the inspiration for it. To step in, you know, there was three main components that we knew we wanted within the whole collection. One was to, you know, lead the front of, of marine restoration in, in different ends. And we saw corals as a great way to represent that since corals house a lot of marine life and in some way act like the heart of the ocean. Um, we also know we wanted a strong community or working and, and kind of excited about this goal. Um, so we put in or tried to implement a bit of indigenous culture there to represent that close knit society that they, you know, we used to have. And then the last component was also leveraging technology 
to any extent that we can in order to fulfill our pledge and therefore combining a bit of like this futuristic solar punk component. So those are the three main elements that we have kind of tied in our mission and, and that's how they reflect in the art. Yeah, it's, it's really great. It shows that the project's really well thought out and the art definitely reflects that. Um, looking at the roadmap, y'all have a lot on it. Um, in real life meetups, the Solar Punk Academy Education Hub, the Aqua Token partnerships with Coral Triangle Center in Indonesia, Turks and Caicos Refund and Coral Guardian. It's an overload of information. So for our listeners, what's the vision statement? How would you sort of condense uh, what the project is for them? In a very overarching way. And then I guess we can uh, get into the nitty gritty slowly as we as we go on. No, But the main objective of this project would be in a sense to provide somehow kind of economic, uh, educational and recreational incentives to the community, all while supporting wildlife conservation in some way. So um, a big objective is obviously to have a big Im impact in, in the way we support wildlife and marine conservation. However, we want to, you know, there's a lot of companies and brands doing that in, in a lot of different ways beyond our capabilities. But one thing that's important for us is to kind of gamify this experience, to make it a fun and, and emotive process to actually interact with this, to vote, to get involved with all these projects that we're planning on supporting and, and make it something that actually drives people and get, gets them excited. <laughs> Um, and then we'll probably talk about the impact fund a bit later down the line, as you mentioned, where 50% of proceeds will get invested. However, we also know that, you know, it's not just a matter of investing in coral conservation, right? You can plant as many corals, but there's so many other issues that at the end of the day will, will kind of go against that, that effort of yours, right? So we also put a big focus on educational resources, which is a central part of any kind of movement or cultural movement that you try and make. And uh, we execute that by providing educational resources all about around the solar punk movement, as Christian mentioned, which we can also get to a bit down the line. Um, but yeah, overall, we're, we're just planning on kind of making, making it a fun experience to, to get involved with these projects and, and be part of the change. And yeah, talking about one of the highlights of the roadmap, which is the impact fund, 50% um, of both primary and secondary sales go towards wildlife preservation. Um, how do the fund and governance work? Okay, so um, basically what happens is um, upon the sale of our collection, as you mentioned, 50% of those funds will go into a separate uh, wallet, um, which will be defined as the impact fund. Um, and then periodically over time, so we're actually going to be following the moon cycles uh, with this, kind of inspired by the way in which some corals spawn and that sort of natural timing. That will be deployed periodically um, uh, uh, over time. And so what will happen is um, a board of curators will um, sort of uh, present different projects. So these might be like uh, coral planting projects. They might be um, even taking that a step further and looking at like some assisted evolution and, and micro fragmentation technologies. Um, sometimes they might be kind of more outside of that and in the wider domain of like marine restoration or even creating art around, um, around the ocean and these sorts of things to have a kind of like a holistic approach. Um, so once all these projects are curated uh, on this periodic basis, the community will then be able to like see them on a kind of online and interactive platform and with their NFT, connect their NFT to our website, verify they have the ownership of it and um, choose uh, and channel where that, um, where that funding goes. And uh, Jimmy, who's actually a little bit more technical than I am, maybe can share a bit more about how some of the governance mechanism works and how we plan to do it at the beginning and, and develop it further. 
Yeah, so just to add to that, so it will be in, in rounds, as Christian said, and then there will also be kind of some infrastructure uh, down the line in order to facilitate our community and our holders to propose their own projects as well. Um, and ultimately, each project that we find, some of which will might take the form of a donation, some of which may take the form of a more of an investment with some type of reward, either monetary, which again would relay back into the impact fund, or in terms of membership, subscriptions, experiences, which we can give back to our holders. And therefore each project that's proposed will have a minimum budget needed to accomplish whatever is being kind of pitched uh, to execute on their end. And if that budget is met, then you know the, the investment will go ahead. And ultimately for now, the one each NFT will count as one vote. And down the line, once we roll out staking, which uh, is a whole other world that we can get into it, um, but ultimately staking will allow us to reward users for locking their NFT in a vault, ultimately. And through the token that we give them, they'll be able to also use that token to interact with the impact fund, kind of tying back to the idea of rewarding people and gamifying the whole experience of, of interacting with that. Yeah, I would love to hear more about staking. I know that there's a large ongoing conversation about the environmental impacts of NFTs. So could you briefly explain the difference between um, proof of stake, proof of work, proof of history um, and the environmental concerns about the three? Absolutely. So that's that's a big one, uh, but I'll do my best to summarize it. So proof of work is kind of the the OG, the, the original one. That's what uh, the consensus of Bitcoin is built on. And each of those that you mentioned is ultimately a consensus protocol that different blockchain networks can use in order to validate uh, any transaction and make sure that it's um, it hasn't been kind of uh, amended or, or altered by anyone. So ultimately proof of work is what Bitcoin is built on and it incentivizes miners to solve this algorithmic problem by using the most amount of energy as possible, right? So uh, ultimately the first person or the first uh, pool of computers to solve that problem will be the ones that are rewarded with whatever monetary value is attached to that. So ultimately what that incites miners to do is to increase the capacity of energy and computational power of their uh, computers. What that leads to is more computers being used and more energy being used in order for you to be the miner that solves it quicker. And therefore it's it's this idea of all these different computers competing against each other, right? And that's led to a very high uh, usage of energy. So then came proof of stake, which is currently what uh, networks like Ethereum, for example, use. And this takes quite a different approach where instead of the first person to solve the mathematical problem being the one that receives all the rewards for validating that, instead of miners, you have validators. And so validators need to stake a certain amount of Ethereum into a vault. And basically what that ensures is that instead of people competing to solve a mathematical problem, the validator is chosen randomly based on the amount staked. And ultimately, uh, what this reduces is competition between validators because there's only one validator at any given time. Um, and also because they have some Ethereum state, it ensures that if they have some sort of, um, if they don't validate a problem uh, correctly, then the amount that they've staked will be subtracted. And therefore, there's always an incentive for them to kind of validate everything accordingly because if not, they'll lose the money. However, proof of stake, which is, uh, what Ethereum uses still uses a considerable amount of energy because computers need to be constantly validating the whole uh, block of nodes or, or database. 
So then came Solana uh, a few years ago and they introduced what they call proof of history, which is not its own consensus. It's pretty similar to proof of stake, but ultimately what they added was a component of time where they timestamp all of the, they allow all the nodes to timestamp every transaction. And so instead of having to constantly validate the order in which all the blocks should be in, the timestamp allows the computers to communicate more efficiently and assume the order in which the nodes should be uh, ordered. Uh, ultimately, this, to my understanding, sacrifices a bit of uh, security. However, it allows for a much, much higher uh, transaction speed and also transaction efficiency. So what that has led is you know, Ethereum, for instance, has uh, an insane amount of usage currently for transactions, which might reduce in the future. But uh, minting one NFT is kind of like the EU household consumption of energy of like a month or six months. I'm not sure how much it is, but it's pretty high. Whereas on Solana, two transactions consume the same amount as a Google search. Um, so that's pretty negligible. And that's been a big game changer for the whole NFT narrative. And would you say that's the basis of your project employing Solana? Um, absolutely. So we have a huge environmental focus and, you know, we were very tempted to launch on Ethereum at the beginning because Ethereum has the biggest amount of sales volume. It has some of the biggest names, influencers, celebrities, all the movement, some great collections, you know, and it, it seemed like that's, you know, where all the movement was happening. However, it was so counterproductive for us to set off on this huge mission, you know, to, to fight and support marine conservation, but then do so in a network where everything that we do for now will consume an uh, insane amount of energy. And then we started looking into Solana. Solana has been growing quite rapidly in recent months. And the speed and efficiency not only allows us to do everything at a near like zero carbon emission, um, but also opens the doors to making a lot more functionalities down the line, given its speed and, and efficiency. And for other NFT projects that aren't environmentally focused specifically, how can they start to uh, uh, incorporate more sustainability into their projects? So the main, the main way in which NFT collections currently uh, consume a lot of energy and therefore uh, have high CO2 emissions is ultimately because of the network that you launch in, right? So if you're on Ethereum, then that's uh, quite high. However, recently there's been more and more what you call uh, layer twos um, solutions and networks built on top of Ethereum. So for example, one is called Immutable X, um, which is a, I believe it's kind of correlated with Ethereum and that allows for a much higher um, efficiency and therefore lower uh, consumption and a few others like Polygon. Um, however, that comes with a cost again, in terms of security and for instance, not being able to launch on the same marketplaces with, with high volumes in terms of, you know, so the first choice that I would say is the choice of network, which will make a big difference. Um, a part of that, I guess a lot is coming down to within the NFT space, to, for, for instance, donations. You know, there's a huge amount of money being moved between collections and more increasingly collections are often uh, partnering up with charities and NGOs in order to try and kind of balance out the, the CO2 emissions. Gotcha. And going back to something you were talking about earlier with your emphasis on education, I think a lot of this about the intersection of blockchain and sustainability isn't something people are very knowledgeable about. And so in your own words, what would you say are the main driving factors um, that would lead to blockchain technology becoming more sustainable? And currently, 
what impact on the environment does the blockchain actually have? Because to say it has a high energy consumption makes sense, but I think it's difficult for some people to conceptualize what that actually means to the environment. Yeah, so it's interesting what you say as well about the narrative, right? Because even even for me that I've been in this space for a few years, it, I'm still learning every day and everything seems quite you know um, abstract. And if you get into white papers, for instance, of, of some networks, like I don't know if you guys have tried to read the Solana white paper, but it's it's you know it feels like a master thesis or I don't know. It's really hard to to really understand, right? So the option for the mass is to then just read the headlines, right? And newspapers, which a lot of times don't know either. And they just bundle up blockchain and NFTs into one same group without paying attention to the details like the network chose and, and so on. Um, with your question of, of kind of the moving forward and how this can change. Um, so I think as soon as, as soon as NFTs and, and crypto started growing a lot in the previous year, that's when a lot of the environmental focus started coming in, right? Because a lot of companies wanted to use it, uh, companies that perhaps are ethical and very environmentally driven, but nevertheless uh, recognize the benefits of blockchain. Um, you had, you know, a lot of individuals tapping into it. You had governments experimenting. So one, the first option that I see there is that as soon as it starts being mass adopted, more and more people are going to have an incentive to start looking for solutions, right? Because more and more people are going to want to implement it into whatever it is they're doing, their government, their project, their business, so on. And therefore more and more people are going to have a, a, an incentive to actually find a solution to that. So the first thing is that as it grows, I think there'll, bigger, there'll be a bigger demand and pool of people kind of finding a solution. Um, and then second of all, as well, is, is the type of energy that is being used for mining and for validating, right? there's people can choose what energy they use. And currently a lot of that is fossil fuels that miners, for example, for Bitcoin or validators for Ethereum will use to validate anything. However, naturally as uh, solar powered energy or renewable energy becomes cheaper. I mean, if you think about it from a business perspective, it, it just makes sense that miners will start using that, right? If, if they can use a, an energy, which is a lot cheaper and consumes less then naturally they're going to use that because their profit margin is going to be bigger. Um, so another one is just the economies of scale of renewable energies. And that will naturally also lead to a big transition in terms of miners and validators towards that. There's one more ingredient there, which is, it's kind of interconnected, but it's also like consumer choice and like just what people behind the screen feel and what their ethics are. You know, like I read an article a while back by a guy named uh, Memo Atken. If you're interested in this sort of stuff, he writes a lot about it and it's called the unreasonable ecological cost of crypto art. And um, he talks about like how, and that's where Jimmy's um, referencing the statistic from like uh, minting an NFT on certain platforms uh, consumes the same amount as 30 days energy usage in the, in an EU household. You know, um, if you get into a big collection of like 800 or even in the thousands, you push that number to like 40 years, you know? So it's crazy what you can do as he puts it with the click of a mouse. It's like you click the mouse and boom, this whole thing, because you want to wear what, what was behind it, you know? So I think as more and more people like voice concerns and like wake up to the situation that, you know, these protocols, although they are decentralized and, you know, I don't demonize them to, to any extent because they provide a decentralized system, which also facilitates a lot of change in itself, you know? But from just purely the environmental perspective, once people start awakening to the fact that, yeah, actually let's be conscious with our mouse clicks. We just haven't, you know, that concept hasn't come to us because we just think 
you know, you click a mouse and it's just a, a small digital thing. It can't be anything, you know, but once we start to really grind into that or open to that perspective of the impact we're making, I think more and more and more consumers will choose to not buy an NFT from a network that pollutes in itself. They'll just be like, I don't want that kind of NFT. And the demand will start guiding the market into um, into other solutions and 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 even the the networks that do pollute that have a huge critical mass to innovate new solutions and new layers and, and new forms of working you know so I think that's also a something to consider. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and as a project that's at the intersection of the environment, community, and technology, um, how do you see decentralization being used as a tool going forward to combat climate change and environmental issues? Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> go for it go for it Jim. um yeah i love that question and we should probably extend the podcast for another hour to go through every <laughs> solution that comes to mind but um there's some really really cool solutions uh that are overarching and can be applied to any industry a lot of which will relate to environmental conservation oh, wow. and conservation one of it is for example the role that blockchain can and is starting to have in supply chain and the traceability and transparency of supply chains which ultimately if you know we're able to verify in a more concrete way the entire supply chain process not only where products are sourced from but how they're distributed that will allow for much more kind of trust and, and accountability to companies and consumers to know how much are they actually helping or harming the environment by buying this product right because there's a more a lot more information as to how that product life cycle went about um another one that, which i love which i came about when i was in mozambique is that you know, normally it's smallholder farmers, for instance, that will produce, you know, go through agricultural practices, which are a lot more environmentally friendly with less pesticides, a lot, you know, more local uh, distribution and so on. Uh, and a big issue that they have, for instance, is micro insurances for their crops. And it's very hard for smallholder farmers to afford that because normally they're in remote areas and you would need the insurer to travel a long way for all these small crops to verify that. So a lot of smallholder farmers don't have insurance on crops and that makes it a lot harder for them to actually grow and expand. And then with blockchain, you can integrate that in order to tie uh, certain like microclimate um, measurements of certain areas as so. So if a certain climate condition happens, so X amount of rain falls during this amount of this period of time, that automatically triggers something within the insurer's uh, kind of central office which verifies that smallholder farmer is eligible for insurance and so on. So, you know, one is like accountability and traceability in terms of um, supply chain, um, benefiting and supporting smallholder farmers, which tend to have more ethical production methods. I've been reading as well about how to kind of, you know, companies are starting to integrate blockchain to trace the actual picking up of plastics in the ocean and verify that certain boats are actually picking up the plastic Whereas with, without blockchain, it's very easy for any company that claims that they're picking plastic from the ocean to get plastic from a landfill, chuck it into the ocean, and then say they got it from there, right? So ultimately, blockchain is just providing transparency, which allows us to really understand what companies are doing behind the scenes, um, and also accountability, because once something is recorded on the blockchain, you cannot change that any, anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And then just building on that last point, I also think there's something to do with like the power structures. Like, I think a lot of our environmental crisis derives from the kind of hierarchical power structures that have dominated this earth since the dawn of civilization from about 10,000 years ago. You know, we've like, we've been 
in a in a classist society under the rule of kings and and politicians and priesthoods for a long time, right? And that's not to say that there aren't ethics and good decision making there, but it's very easy in those situations for the agenda or the intent of a, a group of small people to have its impact on a whole society. And that often leads to unwise choices because it, it, it leads to people wanting, wanting to kind of get rich quick or not be in touch with what's happening out there on the field, on the ground and the actual forest, you know, just get, getting the materials and that to produce their product. So I think the fact that a lot of our civilization has been built on this very detached and sort of hierarchical and centralized um, perspective, now the idea that blockchain and decentralization is allowing for a whole new paradigm in the way people are interacting, building organizations, there's lots of community voting, it's, it's much more community and people driven now. So I think that in itself lends a whole new organizational structure, which I think in the long term is more sensitive, in a sense, to what's going on in our environment and can you know, direct capital into ways that governments might not want to. Now there's an opportunity, you can raise funds and you can just do it. If they're not doing it, you can do it. You know, so it's that kind of um, idea, I think that's um, also a strong factor. The last comment you made is something that really excites me in the sense that funding nowadays feels more like meritocracy um, in the sense that if you have a good idea, you don't have, at least in the United States, you don't have to make an LLC, pass through the SEC, go through funding rounds. If you have a good idea and can explain it thoroughly, you can raise funding through NFTs or through ICOs, IDOs, or whatever it is, and then use that funding in the way that it's meant to be without a lot of these sort of legal constraints and hierarchy of typical corporations. Absolutely. And one, one clear, which is a bit, you know, unrelated to environmental conservation, but a clear example that gets me really excited about what you're saying there of funding is NFTs for music where artists are able to sell a certain song as an NFT. And that song comes with discographic uh, royalty rights. So if you buy that song, you're basically receiving uh, the royalties that that song generates through Spotify, YouTube, any other streaming platform. And what ultimately that opens the doors is for artists to get all their funding from their fans and their clients and their listeners, rather than from agencies and production companies that will then control a large extent of their creative process and flow. Right. So flipping the way NFTs are flipping the, the, the entire process of funding and allowing individuals to get funding from individuals directly. You know? It's like a, yeah, really, really exciting times. Yeah, I, I actually had Dill, um, the artist who made the Jordan Belfort song and the Crypto Rich album on last week to talk exactly about that and how typically record label deals aren't very favorable towards the artist because obviously if you have a young kid who's very passionate about his music, he's going to do anything to be able to produce an album. So they're going to set the terms of the agreement, put up the money. Um, but with NFTs, you can crowdsource that from your fans, from your family. And so you know that the people who are reaping the rewards are the people you care about most and who truly support you. Um, really exciting. Yeah. It's like you become a broker for an artist, right? If you see a cool artist on the street and you really like his music, instead of just having, you know, two options, either you buy a CD, which no one uses CDs anymore, or you just throw some cash and you forget about it, right? you'd be able now to scan a QR code and you buy 20% of his song, right? And you're already kind of, it's just changing the paradigm completely. It's really exciting times for NFT music as well. Yeah, and I'd say the same advantage exists also in the scientific community where applying for grants, getting funding for research and conservation programs can be quite difficult. So providing an alternative funding method is going to be really important. And what about you, Anna? Because you say, you know, you've got a much 
you know, very extensive background in conservation and you've also been getting into NFTs. So what's like some of the cool applications of, and you know, blockchain NFTs and marine conservation specifically that you've seen? I was really excited by everything that you were talking about. I think you guys um, really hit the nail on the head with those points, um, really talking about the culture of it, um, creating communities. I think community building is a really important aspect of environmentalism moving forward. Um, and you have these really great groups being created by NFT communities. You can see that um, being implemented in urban communities, areas that um, typically wouldn't be organizing to uh, create environmental justice, stuff like that. Um, so really, um, you know, running with those things forward, I think is going to be a really important change. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the community aspect of that is the hardest, you know, the, the focal point of any NFT project or anything that we build from now on, right? Because regardless of how cool your roadmap is and how exciting your art may look, if you have, if you don't have a community behind you, your project is going nowhere. Right. So it's kind of like, your ability to create this community and, and tie in a group of people that all share a common purpose or passion or goal is what's going to dictate not only the impact of your project, but the success of it, how much money the investors make, you know, everything, everything is tied to a common goal. Um, so yeah, it's really exciting. And, and as you say, you know, it's, it's all about getting people excited about environment conservation to tie it in with new technologies and, and kind of stay on the edge of, of what's going on. I wanted to, to ask a sort of fun question, and I think everybody else in the room is much more knowledgeable about this than I am. Um, I've, I've dived a few times, but I'm curious what coral restoration dives actually are and what it actually means to go into these coral communities and help them, at least in terms of the diving aspect. Like, what does that look like? Um, so maybe we can start a little bit, um, and, and I'm sure you have some, some knowledge here as well to share. But um, so we're working with different um, coral farmers, really, uh, in different countries, uh, a couple in Indonesia in um, Coral Triangle Center, um, as well as uh, another in the Bahamas and, and in Spain. Um, and they all have different techniques, like they all have different ways in which they go down and uh, plant uh, coral. Like the, the most standard one is to fragment a piece of uh, mother coral or like a, an old coral that is resilient and you plant that little fragment uh, um, among other ones to slowly create a habitat and a reef and within six months a little bit more you start seeing fish coming and it you know nature takes its course and you start establishing that that um, biodiversity um, but there are other there are lots of different solutions like we're also working with another NGO in um, in Spain here that they actually dive down. It's a very deep reef, and they can they go down uh, in, into these deep parts, and they're kind of um, cutting and taking away um, uh, like um, things that have been left over by fishing boats, like nets and ropes and all this kind of stuff, where the coral is like tangled up in, and it's kind of it will slowly die there. Um, and they actually rescue the coral, and then they take it to a land farm where they um, where they start kind of um, letting it grow in a in a sort of clean environment and then they replant it in a kind of organic substrate back into the back into the reef so you've got that kind of 360 process that goes on as well um and you know a lot of our partners are also um working with other uh, mediums and uh and research uh, in terms of like assisted evolution um which kind of gives the coral uh on on a land-based farm it gives the coral challenges like different acidity levels and um 
and temperatures as well and trains it to be more resilient and this sort of stuff. So there's also a whole host of things that happen outside the dive that influence that, um, that whole uh, possibility. Very cool. And Anna, what's, what's your experience with research dives? What have, what have they been like? Yeah, I've done some scientific diving um, in Belize. Um, and one of the most important things that I took away from that project um, was really the importance on community engagement in the research that you're conducting. Um, if you are an outside institution wanting to uh, do a conservation project or a research project, um, understanding the power dynamics at play, who's involved in the decision making and the design of the research project is really important. Um, the work that I did was used to inform uh, environmental policy and fishing management practices in Belize. So working with local governments can be one example of that. I think that typically in the scientific community, knowledge can be treated simply as data um, that's understood in a very abstract form. But really, um, you know, a huge part of the environmental movement is fighting against uh, this um, idea of extraction that we have from the environment with natural resources. And then also you can look at local communities um, extracting information and data from them. So really focusing on the co-production of knowledge and of science, of research with local communities, with indigenous communities, which I think you guys touched on a little bit in your project um, is super important. Absolutely, I love that like knowledge management within the space, you know, and also what we're finding is that a lot of these, most of these core restoration projects are very local, right? They're, they're, they're created by people that grew up in that certain area that have seen first sight all the damage that's been created. And a lot of the NGOs that we're working with only employ local people, right? And local people will have such a different type of, of knowledge than maybe an outsider institution that has its own type of, you know, technological scientific knowledge, you know, that it came up with a lab, but then the local people will have a certain type of knowledge, which that, you know, derives from actually growing up in that area, from knowing the coastal areas so well and what's going on, you know? So I really like what you speak about kind of improving that flow of, of knowledge and that transfer of knowledge and the way we store it and, and are able to communicate it, you know? And it's, um, it's going to be exciting as well to, because for us, it's not just, we don't just want to platen the corals and, and leave it there and show a little picture. You know, a lot of the impact fund and everything that we do, a large part of it is to execute with as much transparency as we can, again, using blockchain, but also tracking all the impact that our community is having through that, you know, and, and kind of tracking the whole process of coral growth and communicating how is that going? How is it done? You know, and through that, you're not just investing in, in planting corals, but you're also, you know, educating people about that own process and, how far it can go. So, so yeah, knowledge management is, is definitely like an exciting part and something we'll, we'll have to tie in as well. Yeah. Su super excited to see everything that goes on with this project. Y'all have such great mission, such great team, very well thought out. Um, for all of our listeners who want to get involved and check this project out, the website is cryptocoraltribe.io. The Twitter handle is coral tribe NFT. Christian, Jimmy, any, any parting words, any call to actions? It's been great chatting with both of you and you've got a beautiful vision as well of like blockchain and, and Anna, very knowledgeable as well in marine conservation. We might have to bring you in as one of our uh, curators or project experts, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm really excited to, to be here and thanks for, for everything. Man. Yeah, thank you for the questions. And, um, and also, you know, just to also mention our Discord as well. Um, this is like 
if you really want to like get close to to what we're doing and and connect with all the people involved like we're on there and we're running like some cool competitions and like really interesting stuff that are getting people like excited and involved and that's why a lot of the magic and, and the buzz is happening so yeah feel free to join our discord maybe we can also link that up um if you want to get that kind of that closeness uh, to the things we're doing great i'll definitely drop all the links in the show notes thank you so much guys it's been really great talking to you today yeah likewise thank you.